Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On this program, you'll be hearing more from my interview with Craig Parton, who is the Santa Barbara trial lawyer who appeared on the last episode. In this part of our conversation, I talked with Craig about many of the issues he addressed in his book, Religion on Trial. In that book, Craig writes that religions are worldviews. They claim to address the primary questions of our existence, where we came from, where we're going, and why we're going where we're going. So in that sense, he says, everyone is religious because everyone has a worldview, even if that worldview is that we came from a totally purposeless beginning and are returning to dust. Now, this is something that really only became clear to me after my own conversion to the Christian faith. I was raised in a kind of secular Jewish home. Though we attended services on occasion, religion just wasn't terribly important to our family, and I checked out at a fairly early age. In fact, I was basically an atheist by the third or fourth grade. But it wasn't actually until after my conversion to Christianity that I began to understand some of the implications of my naturalistic worldview. I hadn't really given it much thought until that time, but for me, there really weren't any problems with things like lying or stealing, apart from the shame of getting caught. And ultimately, I thought the purpose of life was just to have as much fun as I possibly could. So though I didn't think deeply about it, I did have a worldview, and that worldview affected my basic operating assumptions and rules for behavior. But here's the question all of us need to ask. If our worldview has this much power that it ends up controlling the things we believe and do, shouldn't we give some thought as to whether or not it happens to be true? Well, that's the focus of my extended conversation with Craig Parton, author of Religion on Trial. Craig, in your book, Religion on Trial, you push back against a kind of consumeristic spirituality, and you ask the reader to focus on questions of truth. This is something that comes natural for a trial lawyer. You're focusing on the who done it. You know, what's the truth of the matter? And one of the first points you make along those lines is the fact that 
most of the world's religions are completely incompatible with one another. Can you go into that a little? Give some examples of how some of the major worldviews conflict with one another. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a number of different areas that they conflict with uh, one another. Uh, one, I, I, their view of who God is. Obviously, in Christianity, God is triune. That is completely rejected as demonic in the Quran. Um, you see it in, uh, in other religions and Christian science. God is father, mother, God. Hmm. Um, in pantheistic religions, God is in the trees, not separate from them. Um, so if we're all blind men touching different parts of the elephant, if Buddhism is true, there is no elephant. It's just a spiritual force. And, you know, polytheism, there are many elephants there. <laughs> right, right. It presents a, a problem of whether you've got the right categories that you're asking. And I think one thing that needs to be said and isn't said very often is Christianity does not say every other human attempt in religious position is 100% wrong and evil. We, we don't need to say that. Um, there can be some common grace in other religions that have some aspects that they've got right. Yeah, just um, like a counterfeit bill, you know, has to have some correspondence with the truth or else right. it wouldn't work. Right, and, and we're not required to say every other religion and everything they teach is incorrect. Consistent with what we're talking about, we, we say when they contradict each other in no way can be harmonized, how do you choose between which one is right? And what we're saying is, is that Christianity offers a fact-based approach to that question. It, and it's based on the resurrection of Christ as the objective external fact that uh, people have looked at to try and refute to, to uh, bring Christianity down because it, by its own admission, it's falsifiable. Mm. I, I encourage people when the next person comes knocking on their door with pamphlets to give them on a religion to ask the question, what would have to be true in order for your religion to be false? If the answer is there's nothing, it's, it's a matter of personal burning in the bosom or some self-affirmation, uh, you might as well disregard it because there's a million options for getting your life straight internally. So the, it really is critical. I mean, Paul's attitude is I'd be eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die and we're dust. Yeah, if, if Christ is not risen, we are of all men most to be pitied. Uh, pathetic. We've lied to other people. Yep. We've deceived other people about their future. We've deceived ourselves. And our faith is in vain. Uh, you know, when I when when I think about the the blind men and the elephant story, the one thing that I think about is typically the person who is telling the story somehow sees the whole elephant and right. you know, they're attempting to summarize that that you know, the nature of reality, but how do we know that view? is the right view as well. It's just another one of those religious options that he's kind of bringing right. in and assuming that it's the correct way. Right. That's a very good point. He's, he's got the higher plane and the, the vision to be able to see mm -hmm. uh, who, who's got it right. Well, that's kind of putting the cart before the horse. Yeah, it's begging the question. Right. He's in the same situation as, as everybody who's got a part of the elephant. Yeah. And so I want to know, like, wh what evidence do you have 
that your perspective is more than a hunch. And that's right. what I want to ask everyone. That's why I'm calling this, this show The Humble Skeptic. Whenever there is a conflict of, of perspective, well, let's see which one has more merit than the other. And I, I think it's critical when talking to people of different religious positions that when they say all religions are saying the same thing, they're, they're not displaying that they know what other religions actually teach. I, I want to know what you know about Buddhism mm-hmm. before you tell me that it's compatible with Christianity. Right. I want you to, to tell me what you know about the doctrines of Mormonism or uh, the Quran. And have you really looked at these? Because ultimately, my, my experience is when people say they're all saying the same thing, they haven't studied any of them. Furthermore, you know, you know, when somebody says to me that all religions are essentially the same, a good follow-up question, you know, could be to ask the person to comment on Jesus' statement in John 14 when he says, I am the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Right. You know, if that kind of exclusive claim ends, ends up rubbing them the wrong way, you might point out the fact that this is perhaps an example of the fact that Christianity is not essentially the same as all the other religions. Right. I mean, it is an exclusive claim. Yeah, by the and, founder of our religion. And, and scripture is filled with the, the early evidential approach to defending the faith. It was miracle and prophecy. Yeah. This man fulfilled prophecy in, in innumerable ways, in, in all the aspects of Christ's life, death and resurrection. That's actually the reason I became a, a believer in Christianity yeah. was through recognizing that, wait a minute, nobody told me about a Messiah because Judaism has been secularized. But now that I'm actually reading for myself the New Testament, and now I'm looking at the all the places in which it's claiming to fulfill Old Testament passages, I go to the Old Testament passages and I say, hmm, Isaiah 53, it looks like a section missing yeah. from Matthew's gospel. It's so clear. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, Out of Bethlehem shall come the one who is born, Micah 5.2. They pierced my hands and feet, Psalm 22. All these passages just kind of blew me away, and I talked to rabbis about it, and uh, I didn't think their answers were rather persuasive. Right. But it did get me to the point where I began to consider the claims. A, are these passages from the Old Testament sort of real, or were they manipulated by the first century Christians? B, is there something historical about this Jesus character that witnesses are claiming to have seen? Right. And you see this over and over in the New Testament. Uh, They preach, and yet there's miracles that they're being uh, done, uh, tactile evidence provided that these people are the real deal. And and prophecy and miracle are, are just throughout the defense of the faith in the New Testament. Yeah, it starts with Abraham. In his seed, all the nations will be blessed. It's an international promise from the beginning. It won't stay a small little group here in Palestine. It's going to explode and take over the world. And sure enough, you look around, it it seems to have come true. (laughs) Right, and it's it's just fascinating. Look at the history of apologetics. You see the early church fathers right after the New Testament's closed or, or... using prophets, fulfilled prophecy and miracle as the two main methods of presenting the faith. They're not using personal testimony. Right. Even though, talk about personal testimony. These people have them. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of like Paul on the Damascus Road. And you know, How are you going to top that? But he doesn't allow the conversation to stay there because he knows 
that's an internal thing that can be dismissed as well. You, you had an experience. Now, Craig, I've got a few more clips for you to interact with from my street interviews. So let's listen to this one. And then I'd like to get your response. So why do you think you have the true faith? There's a lot of faith options. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ, so he is the only way. That's what the Bible says, but why do you believe the Bible? Why do I believe the Bible? Because it's God's holy word. How would you assess that kind of response? I'd put that under the title and logic of circular reasoning. Um, It's proving the Bible with the Bible. You've got to get out of that matrix. And the fact is, the way to establish the authority of Scripture is through Christ and the resurrection. Yeah, You start with the reliability, the general reliability of the first four books of the New Testament. They establish the case for Jesus Christ, his existence and his claims, and present the resurrection. Once you've got it established by the burden of proof, by the reliability that lawyers have applied in legal apologetics to the standard for you know the reliability of any ancient document. Once you have Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, then you ask him, does he have a view of the Bible, of the Old and New Testament? You know, when it comes to a person claiming that the Bible is God's word, one of the things that I try to do is just change the book. So uh, I ask, you know, would it be persuasive if a person said they know that Mormonism is true because the Book of Mormon claims to be God's word or the Quran is true because it claims to be God's word? If I was to just assume the truth of the Quran, you you would quickly catch that if you don't believe the Quran. You're going to be quick to catch that. So Mm -hmm. don't use that same argument to non-believers. Don't assume the truth, as you were saying. First of all, you establish the basis that the Gospels and the epistles of the New Testament are actual historical documents. Let's tug at them and ask, would these work if we tested them to see if they're real history? If you're testing a portrait, for example, is this a real Da Vinci painting or is this a fake? Well, there are kind of oil tests and various things you can apply to see, is this canvas from the Middle Ages? You know, uh, same kinds of tests can be done for the New Testament documents. Can these give us information that we know from the first century? Does it have the right geography? Does it have the right botanical information? Does it have the right information about first century Jewish practices and beliefs? What about the political figures? Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely critical that Christians understand how to present the case for, for Jesus Christ. If I have a chance to speak to a secular audience, law students at Stanford recently, if I have one opportunity to do that, My sole topic is the reliability of the New Testament Gospels. Because once I establish that foundation that they are reliable, that they're based on the most manuscripts, that they're written by associates or close associates of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, um, that they have all the indicia of reliability, uh, from that foundation, people can easily be taken through the steps to, to the establishing the resurrection as his uh, basis for his claim to be God in the flesh. If the, in these reliable documents, Jesus claims to be God, that's a factual question. Does he or does he not go through the, the reliable documents? You find out he does. 
Then he, he asserts that he's going to verify that claim because making claims is really easy to do. Right. He's going to verify it by his resurrection and does so. Yeah. And even before his resurrection, he would say things like, so that you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up and walk. So he, he performs a miracle to establish his authority as one who forgives sins, which they were saying in their hearts, only God That's can right. do this. And, and predicting his resurrection from the dead is the vindication mm-hmm. of his claims uh, to be God in the flesh and, and for our salvation. I mean, some people can argue you can get into a discussion of whether the resurrection really is dealing with the essential human condition. Uh, I'd like someone to suggest a different miracle that has higher value than victory over death, (laughs) since we're all concerned and all going to die. Uh, If God became flesh and came on this earth, I'd prefer if he has one central miracle that it deal with victory over death rather than victory over hemorrhoids in, in, in this life, uh, a temporary solution to a human illness. Um, what you have in the resurrection is a full-blown victory over death, Satan, and the devil. One thing that comes up when you're talking to people about uh, Jesus and the Gospels, you know, partly, you know, you have to undo a lot of the kind of teaching that's out there because the Discovery Channel and the History Channel have muddled things so much, you know. Whenever they do a documentary about Jesus, it's always the Gospels are late and unreliable. They're testaments about the faith of the later Christian community, but not real history. One of the things that I think gets in the way is the idea that it happened so long ago, it's hard to really know what happened. And you are someone who has tried cases that involve ancient texts. Well, I shouldn't say ancient, but at least very, very old texts. How do you go about establishing before a jury that a certain artifact, a text is authentic. Yeah. A recent case, uh, it's now been a few years since I've done this one exactly, but it was based on a document that was, uh, is now 125 years old. And the the first question is where, where was that document found? And it's, it's a foundational document to this company, the founding charter articles of incorporation, and uh, it was found in the, where you think it would be found in the corporate offices in box number 257 in a storage. Right next <laughs> to the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it is in general where you would expect to find the original document. And the fact is, is that the general content of that document has been reproduced and used up to this day. And all I had to show was the the original was completely consistent with all the copies that have been made since that time. Yeah. And if there's if there's a question about where the documents found, if instead it was found in a lizard lounge in Las Vegas behind the guy making margaritas, you'd kind of wonder about whether it's been found in a location that such a document should be stored in. Yeah, same kind of, you know, discussion comes up with the New Testament. Has it been yeah. faithfully transferred and copied? But you take a very early text like uh, Clement, First Clement. It was probably written um, sometime between uh, 65 and 95. I kind of end up arguing it was uh, it was before the fall of Jerusalem because it, it talks about the temple and the priests still uh, being around. The thing is, if you look at a text like that or a similar epistle, Barnabas, I think written mid-70s, there's so many quotes and allusions to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
and yeah. uh, maybe a couple even relating to John. So you look at all the early references, and you know what? When they're quoted and interacted with by these other very early texts, the verses look to be just like we find them in our current Bibles. Yeah. Gary Habermas has done a book, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Jesus, mm -hmm. which is, I forget how many, it's a, 110 facts established by 40 non-gospel, non-New Testament writers uh, establishing the case for Christianity. And, and essentially what Gary does is establish the case for Christianity based on non-biblical sources. Um, and his, his point is, is yeah, Jesus is mentioned because the, the objection is, if Jesus was as big a deal as what you say in the New Testament, why is there so little information about him outside of the New Testament? And Gary deals with that. What I think we need to be careful, though, is those sources in general are not primary sources right. that have eyewitness contact with the events that you get with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, Luke is saying, I looked at this stuff, hammer and tong. I went carefully analyzed this, Theophilus, and looked at this. And there are many infallible proofs for this situation that I can establish. And John refers to himself as an eyewitness. You know, yeah, he who has uh, seen yeah, these yeah. things is testifying to you. Yeah, I mean, at the foot of the cross with the mother of our Lord, mm -hmm. I was an eyewitness to this event occurring. So while, while the Habermas approach has benefit to, to establish that, yeah, there, there are other sources, but those other sources are generally not primary and would be subject to a hearsay objection in, in a court of law. My point is, is pretty simple. The best sources on the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the New Testament authors. And that's something that even Bart Ehrman admits. Yeah, there, there aren't better sources. And then the epistles of Paul, nobody doubts that they're historical. All these references about Jesus and, you know, you can kind of put a list together, you know, of the things that Paul believes and, you know, his early, the early Christian creed mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. So all this is a, is a big mound of evidence that people can sort through and evaluate as they're considering the claim of Christianity. But you say in your book, when a person begins to evaluate evidence for other faiths, often he or she quickly begins to realize that many, if not most of the cases, there just isn't any evidence to weigh. Talk about that. Right, right. I mean, uh, Christianity is offering uh, objective, factual claims to it. This is this is why uh, lawyers have attacked Christianity as being vulnerable on the resurrection. And the only problem is, as they've done the homework to cross-examine Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they've become Christians themselves. And I mean, there there is a Philip Johnson does a bibliography on the number of lawyers that have done uh, evidential apologetical defenses of Christianity who became Christians by looking at the evidence for the resurrection. Yeah, Simon Greenleaf being probably the most famous of all. Yeah, Greenleaf is, is probably the leader of legal apologetics. And the he, was, he was the founder of the law school at Harvard? He was one of the founding members in the evidence department at Harvard mm -hmm. Law School in the 19th century. Uh, but before him, you've got the father of international law, and the name will come to me. Uh, Grotius? 
Grotius, Hugo Grotius, 16th century Dutch legal scholar, did a book on the truth of the Christian religion. And one of the first textbooks on apologetics from a legal perspective, showing the reliability of the New Testament writers and the centrality of the resurrection. A couple of years ago, I was doing some uh, speaking at a church in Birmingham, Alabama, an Anglican church that has 300 lawyers in it. Wow. <laughs> but again, there's an, an attraction to evidence, to proof, to check us out that, yep. that Christianity offers that you just don't find. I mean, go to a Buddhist and ask for external proofs of Buddhism and see how far you get. You have to enter into Buddhism in order to experience it, to verify whether it's true or not. Yeah, don't they say that it is not even relevant as to whether Siddhartha no, actually no. existed? No, or Christianity, if you, you uh, establish that Jesus Christ never lived or never died and resurrected from the dead, the thing is over. It's gone. Let's listen to another clip. I'm a Christian and I believe in God. And I think I have faith because of things that I read in scriptures and things that I pray about and pray for and that happen in my life. So when you read the Bible, you trust it. Why do you trust this holy book but not, say, other holy books, Book of Mormon, the Quran? Uh, I guess it just depends. Everybody believes in something. And for everybody, there's something about each religion that's true for them. I don't know. What do you think about that response? Wow, it's true for them. I mean, this this eliminates Christianity as an exclusive way to God for salvation. Um, what that person's indicating is, you've got truth, I've got my truth. Well, there there goes John fourteen six. Um, there goes any ability to provide hope to someone. Yeah, in all these interviews, it seems like uh, the culture is doing the thinking for us. And we, yeah. what we need is a reformation to go back to the language of the Bible. The Bible yeah. is not using this sort of postmodern relativist truth. It's not saying faith is a blind leap. It's not saying that you can't prove Christianity. It's saying the exact opposite. You know, what we have is a church, maybe, that isn't doing a good job passing on the content of this, of our holy book. Right. Right. And I think part of the problem, Shane, is we, we really aren't presenting what the problem is mm. that the remedy applies to. We're quick to get to the remedy. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Da, 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 da. Well, what is, what is the fundamental problem? The problem is we have terminal cancer, yeah. spiritual terminal cancer that is, that is deadly and cannot be solved by any human instrument. Once we we have an understanding of how bad the human condition is, the nature of man's situation and how desperate it is, then the remedy can make sense. Then, then frankly, telling people what the remedy is makes sense. And this is what Christianity offers. And that, and that condition actually helps to understand the world we live in because it's not yeah. only that we are fallen and we can't save ourselves, but it also our desires and our imaginations are corrupt and we end up inventing other options and other theologies and other methods of salvation. Exactly. And unless you know what human nature is and how deeply scarred and marred 
and terminal our condition is, uh, the, the remedy doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yep. And we've got to really go back to, and I, I tell people, I use the word sin. I think it communicates a lot more. Oh, you can't, it doesn't communicate to non-Christians. Baloney. There, there's more stuff in cinema and music uh, acknowledging that we are lost people. Yep. They don't acknowledge necessarily what the remedy is, but that the the condition That's is right. terminal. The point being, you get off yourself. Right. You get off of a discussion about uh, your obedience, your higher life, uh, which isn't what the gospel is, um, because ultimately somebody's going to point out that you're inconsistent. I mean, you're you're still uh, a sinner. And as a result of that, you still uh, open yourself up to charges that uh, when you're trying to prove Christianity by the lifestyle it brings, usually the Lord has a way of bringing us down on that. I wish there would be more people who would notice that in the text. I mean, often, you know, people read the Old Testament as if it's a, a bunch of morality tales. But then, you know, yeah. you're studying the life of Jacob and you realize what a schemer and deceiver is. You look at David yeah. and you say, here's the guy who was supposed to be slaying the Goliaths in his life. But now he's taking this other guy's wife and then killing the, the husband so that he can sleep with her. <laughs> yeah, right. That's your your higher life. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just, Abraham in other Shrek. words, the, the great heroes of the Bible even are, oh, are totally fallen characters except for one. And this is yeah. the one who entered and interrupted human history and objectively redeemed his fallen creatures. And it was revealed in advance and seen by eyewitnesses in real time. And there is not a story like this anywhere else, is there? Yeah. 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 There, there's hintings of, of a rescue you, you'll see in other cultures, um, the, the tribal approach to religion, where God isn't perceived as some wonderful, consistent with nice, lovely, gentle nature. He is to be yeah. appeased because he will strike you down with all kinds of bad stuff in nature, unless you appease him by buying him off through sacrifices and whatever you have. The, the view of people that worship God based on nature is not lovely, rosy, let's meditate in the garden. It's let's be very scared. This yeah. is a powerful God. They, and they were longing for, for reconciliation, but they didn't yeah. describe the announcement that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that there's a solution here and his name is Jesus. Right. That's uh, exactly right. We need to talk about the the distinctiveness of our uh, religious position and why why we hold to it. And, and people need to be able to articulate that case for Christianity and the resurrection of Christ. But the foundation, if we can have no idea who he was and what he did, right. if this is just shrouded in mystery and in corrupted text, uh, case gone. We might as well do the testimonial approach from now until the doomsday because we have nothing distinctive to say. The fact is we have a reliable authority that gives us, through Jesus Christ, the answer to man's predicament. Well, um, one of the dangers of sort of trying to get to the facts yeah. is that you are so open-minded that you your brains fall out. You, you are so skeptical that you never arrive somewhere. And that's yeah. where I want to be a humble skeptic who is 
especially when trying to sort out differences when you have conflicting ideas. But the goal isn't to just keep asking questions and never to arrive anywhere. The goal is to arrive somewhere. And you and I both converted from the religion of our youth to Christianity yeah. because we believe we've arrived somewhere. But we still are going to ask questions of our faith and say, okay, are we sure? Let's just recheck the right. foundation. Right. And remember the case that we're talking about for Christianity to a skeptic, they, they may turn around and say, well, is it 100% certain? Because facts never arrive at 100% certainty. Yeah. And because of that, people can say, well, then it's possible you're wrong. I mean, it's theoretically possible. Paul seems to say that in 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah. But 2,000 years later, you think they made a good faith effort to try and find the body. Yeah, especially when, you know, the, the facts that Peter puts forward reporting his eyewitness testimony in Acts 2, where he says, these things you can know for certain. Okay, well, can we really know it exactly for certain like we can a mathematical equation? No, it's a different kind of certainty. It's the kind of certainty you can have of a thing. It's very well established. But is it 100% sure? Well, nothing is 100% sure. Even mathematics requires some kind of faith in your reason. <laughs> yeah, you know? Right. But what I think is very persuasive is the fact that what Isaiah wrote in 700 BC matches what Peter was saying. <laughs> now, there's right. something that is like, uh, that's, that's to right. me as good as it's going to get. Right. It, it does match. And uh, the, the fact is, Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 has a lot of, has the whole history of the Old Testament. And, you know, obviously he had a source that is the source I have today because right. everything he says I can verify in right. the Old Testament. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really a, a, a evidence for the reliability of the Old Testament. And it's come down to a sort of reliable way, even though we don't have as many manuscript copies as the New Testament. When Stephen recites the whole Old Testament story, exactly right on our money, we'd find it today in the Old Testament. Or when we found the uh, the Isaiah scroll in the Dead Sea collection, yeah. it was, you know, the oldest copy we had was 900 AD, and then this one's 200 BC. We jumped 1,200 years, and guess what? It looks pretty much the same. <laughs> right, right. And having the number of copies that we have of the New Testament just means we have a wealth of evidence. We, we have many ways to determine whether this was said or not. I mean, you look at Catullus's poetry, first century BC, the first copy we have is, is in the, I believe is in the realm, I want to say it's in the 1400s, but it's, there's a huge gap. And nobody goes around saying, we don't know what Catullus said. We don't know about his poetry, whether it's from him or not. At UC Santa Barbara across the ocean, I can see it from my office. You can get a master's degree primarily in Catullus. And I've never heard anybody say, well, gosh, we only have four manuscript copies. Yeah. And the earliest one is from 1400. <laughs> it's not reliable. You know, nobody does that. Nope. It just shows you there's a prejudice against Christianity. And partly, I think some of that is our fault because we speak like the cultists. Yeah. People have become sort of allergic to the speech we've given because we are presenting ourselves as if we're just another religious experience out there and try as you like us. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, in terms of reliability in the New Testament, uh, I was on 100 campuses doing debates and classroom talks. I constantly got invitations in classics departments 
to present the reliability of the New Testament. They were like, yeah, listen to this guy. The New Testament's got a lot of evidence. And they thought the people in the religious studies department who were criticizing the New Testament were morons. Oh, wow. <laughs> and dangerous. <laughs> dangerous for that, bringing their philosophical view as to whether this could have happened or not. I mean, the classicists are going, the New Testament people have really got a, <laughs> a wealth of data. Yeah, because if, if it's not reliable, then nothing is. <laughs> yeah, we're out of business. <laughs> well, Craig Parton, thank you so much for taking the time to be my guest for this episode of The Humble Skeptic, as we've been discussing many of the themes you've written about and addressed in your wonderful book, Religion on Trial. Thank you. My pleasure. folks. Thanks so much for joining us for this edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Once again, if you're a fan of the show, please, please, please take some time today to rate the show and write a quick review, preferably via the Apple Podcast app. The more positive reviews we get, the more exposure we get. Also, if you're interested in looking into any of the themes I've been addressing in the current series on faith, I'd be happy to send you a 20-page PDF document that I've written titled, What is Faith? which also includes all the sources to the selections I've been referring to from the Oxford English Dictionary, Josephus, Aristotle, the Book of Mormon, etc. I'll send this PDF to you for a gift of any size. Just look for the green tip jar in the show notes section of this episode. Folks, for more information about this program, simply head to HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Are you still here? The show's over. I've got an idea. Open up the Apple Podcast app. Search for the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Give it a five-star review. And write something nice. Just an idea. Since you were still here. <laughs>